I greatly love that psalm. I love singing Psalm 2. <clears throat> Such a strong psalm. And I love the fact that rarely in the Bible uh, do we have God laughing. Uh, in fact, it's one of those things in the Gospels you never hear. You never you hear Jesus doing a lot of things, but you never hear him cracking up. You never hear him, you never hear him laughing. Uh, but in this, in this psalm, God laughs. He mocks. He mocks the nations as they rage and plot and conspire in, in vain things to, uh, to resist him and to resist his anointed. And the Lord holds them in derision. It's a wonderful and beautiful psalm. And the, 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 the confidence, I've set my son on my holy hill, and, and you better kiss him. <laughs> you, better, you better submit to him, kings. Give ear. Um, and it's so relatable to our text this morning, well, the context of our text, because we're looking at Genesis 12, but we're doing it in light of Genesis 11. And we've started this little walk through uh, Christ in the Old Testament. And we had a little bit of confusion this morning. That's why the hymns had to be shifted. We got our, we got our numbers crossed, and were we doing Noah? Are we skipping over Noah? So we're going back to Noah uh, next week, and we're jumping here uh, today to Abram. But you'll remember that we're, we're taking this out of, actually, in, in preparation for Advent and so forth. But, but the, the tie and the connection is from what we were looking at in the book of Acts as Paul continued at the end of his uh, life to say, the reason I'm on, on trial is for the hope of Israel. That, that what I'm preaching to you, what I'm declaring to you, is the hope of Israel, and they don't like it. They don't want it. And so here I am in chains. Here I am with mobs attacking me. It's not because I brought Gentiles into the temple. It's because I preached the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's because I preached the hope of Israel. That long hoped for promise is now fulfilled, and I'm declaring this to you, and it is for this that I am under arrest. It's for this that I am on trial. <clears throat> and so we use that as our connection point now back into what will be a several-month uh, study of Christ in the Old Testament, of looking at how the Old Testament has been laying the groundwork for the coming of Christ. And even Paul himself, you'll remember, was blind to it. He was killing people because they said this. But as the Lord met him on the road to Damascus and blinded him, he blinded him so that by his grace he might see. And three days there in blindness, Paul had to wrestle with the fact that the risen Lord Jesus Christ, whom you are persecuting, met him on that road. And in three days of blindness, I believe Paul in solitude sat and his mind was racing and racing and racing over what that would mean if in fact could it be that Jesus was the long-anticipated Christ but was crucified by Romans and was raised from the dead which is our hope in Israel that one day we will be raised from the dead and, and I think Paul is just for three days in blindness his mind is running through the Old Testament now applying back the light of Christ and the glory of Christ that he's just witnessed on the road and applying it back to all the stories and the law and the prophets that he knows so well and realizing I need to rethink everything. And even this drives him into the wilderness to go study more and then to come back and to meet with the apostles as, as he's just going back and looking at the Old Testament through lenses that finally bring it into focus. And now he sees Christ on every page. 
And he's able to proclaim what he does in Romans 3 and what he does in Galatians 3. What he's saying in Galatians 3 is revolutionary stuff. He's telling Gentiles that they are the seed of Abraham. That I mean, he would have killed people for this. But now he sees in the Old Testament what it meant because he sees the end, the telos, what it was all driving toward in Jesus Christ. And we got this and we started this short series. This is only Sermon 3 on this. But with, with looking at Jesus' words in John 5 when he says to the Pharisees, the scribes, you search the scriptures looking for wisdom, but you don't have wisdom. You don't know the God of the Bible. And it's not me who witnesses against you. Moses witnesses against you. Because if you believe Moses, you will believe me. And then he drops this amazing statement because Moses wrote about me. What an amazing thing to say. Moses wrote about me. And we've taken that challenge to ask, when you read Moses, do you hear Christ? Because if we don't, then I think on the words of Jesus, we are not reading it properly. We may be getting some historical data. We may be extracting some moral lessons, but we are not ultimately grasping the truth of the text. Because Jesus says, Moses wrote about him. And Jesus took Cleopas and walked him through the law and the prophets and showed through all the scriptures how these things had to happen. When we read the Old Testament, do we see that? Are we prepared? Do we hear the, the and, and for us now on the other side of Christ, this is so much easier, still a challenge, but so much easier because we have the lens of Christ. We've seen the finished product and we get to look back and now see in the Old Testament groundwork being laid, the shadows, if you will, the types, the prefigurings, the patterns and the habits that were woven into the text and into the life of Israel that were preparing for the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. We considered two weeks ago just that statement, let there be light, and how in the very beginning we had the, 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 the summary of the whole rest of the scriptures. And then last week, of course, dove into that text that really required 10 sermons and that is Genesis chapter 3, and particularly verse 15. But, <clears throat> but not only that, but also verse 20 with God and covering them with the animal skins. And so spent time thinking about that. And we're skipping over Noah. We'll come back. But today, let's jump then to Genesis 12 and the story of Abram. But for us to appreciate the story of Abram, and hopefully we can have the uh, uh, Galatians 3 and even Romans 3 kind of hanging around. We won't deal with those texts specifically today, but they should be hanging in the background for us as we, uh, as we read, as we think about this. Um, we come to the story of Abram where God calls from all the nations, if you will, or from all the peoples, from all these descendants. He calls one. He calls Abram. And from this one among all the nations, this one from among all the peoples as they're being scattered over the face of the earth and as they're spreading out, God calls one. And from this one, he says, I am going to do a great work of reconciliation. I am going to undo what has been done. So let me just read. I'll read uh, Genesis. I'll read Genesis uh, 12, 1 through 9. Let me just read this. And we've already had Genesis 11. So now let's pick up in this part of the story. And then we'll come back and sum it all up. Now the Lord said to Abram, get out of your country from your family and from your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great, and you shall be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse him who curses you. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. 
So Abram departed as the Lord had spoken to him, and Lot went with him. And Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. Then Abram took Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his brother's son, and all their possessions that they had gathered and the people whom they had acquired in Haran, and they departed to go to the land of Canaan. So they came, came to the land of Canaan. And Abram passed through the land to the place of Shechem, as far as the Terebinth tree of Morah, and the Canaanites were then in the land. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your descendants I will give this land. And there he built an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. And he moved from there to the mountain east of Bethel, and he pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and called on the name of the Lord. So Abram journeyed, going on toward the south. Now, as we think about Genesis chapter 11 and chapter 12, in many ways, what we get here is uh, we're coming back to the story. We, we've, we, if we had Noah, we would have, we'd see that in some sense we're coming back to the story even a third time. We had the Garden of Eden and Adam and Eve uh, disobeying the Lord, and we know the consequences that fell upon them, right? They refused to honor the Lord. They refused to wait upon the Lord and trust him. Satan comes and tempts them with something that the Lord has good for them but that ultimately in order for them to have, they are going to have to wait and depend upon the Lord. And Satan comes and what he tempts them with, you'll remember, is to grasp after something good, but in the wrong time and in the wrong way, in a way that the Lord forbade, right? Uh, grab after it. God wants us to be like him. We're his image bearers after all. We will be like him, the scriptures say. But there's going to be a process by which God is going to craft us. We are his workmanship, and God is going to craft us into looking like him. We are being conformed to the image of Christ. Romans 8, 29, For all those he foreknew, them he predestined, that we might be conformed to the image of his Son. We're being conformed to the image of God, more and more, perfectly and clearly every day. But Satan offers him the chance to be God now. God knows the day you eat, you will be like him and Adam and Eve don't want to go down the hard road of self-discipline and denial and, and dealing with Satan. And so they cave and they grasp for the easy way. They, they grasp for something now in a way that God had not uh, promised. In fact, told them he, he prohibited it. You may not do it that way. And the consequences, of course, were severe. The day you eat, you'll surely die. And once again, darkness, if you will, a deeper darkness, now floods over all of creation. And then Genesis 3.15, if you will, the let there be light moment, right? It's like there is this little glimpse of light in the promise of the gospel in Genesis 3.15 that God is going to set all things right. And it's really murky, and if you were there, you would never have been able to predict how it would all work out. You could not have predicted from... You know, I'll put enmity between your seed and her seed, and between you and her, and between her seed and your seed, and he will crush your head and you will bruise his heel. You would not be able to work out from that Romans, or Bethlehem, or a manger, or a cross, or Golgotha, or resurrection, right? Just, but it's there. It's all there. And all Adam needed to do, and his descendants needed to do, was believe and trust that, in fact, God would do it he would deliver. I, he, they didn't need to know the details. They just needed to know that God was going to set things right. He was going to restore enmities to where they belong, put enmity back between us and the serpent, 
and restore friendship and, and that familiar relationship between us and God. And so the first glimpse of light now into that darkness. And then they're sent out of the garden, but first clothed with the, with the animal skins. Then it's almost as if the story now comes back again in the story of the flood. Man spirals into sin. God brings judgment upon them in the flood and establishes Noah into a new creation. But now in Genesis 11, 11 it's as if the story now recaps and recapitulates itself one more time because the earth as we're told in the beginning has one language and this city has clustered itself together as a people they've gathered in you'll remember what the command to Adam was and what the command even to Noah was was to go be fruitful multiply fill the earth right go do take what I have made and make stuff with it Continue the work of filling and subduing. Continue the work of forming and structuring and filling with good things that the Creator has done. That was the call to Adam as the image bearer of God. And again, repeated with Noah. But what has this city done? Rather than going and filling the earth, they're, they're building walls around themselves, gathering themselves in, and then wanting to make this amazing tower, right, that would, quote-unquote, reach into the heavens by which they would intimidate all the other peoples lest they dare come and attack us and conquer us and scatter us. So they make this city, and, and um, you get uh, in verse 4, you kind of get the essence of the heart and spirit. This is in, in, verse 11, in chapter 11. You get the essence and the spirit of the citizens of Babel. Uh, and they said, come... Let us build for ourselves a city and a tower whose top is in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be scattered abroad the face of the whole earth. So there you kind of get in one verse a condensation of what these people were about. At the end of the day, they want a name for themselves. The two uh, phrases that repeat themselves here are, let us and for ourselves. Let us, let us make a tower. Let us make a name for ourselves. So what they want is honor and glory. They want an awesome name. They want to be renowned among all the peoples. And they want security. Lest we be scattered. Right? We need to make a name for ourselves that's awesome, but also that puts fear in the heart of others, lest they dare think about attacking us and scattering us over the face of the earth. So they want honor and glory, and they want protection. This is what they're after as they seek to do this, as they seek to build this tower and build these walls and build this city. Now, of course, the Lord mocks them. Again, the Lord laughs. He holds them in derision. Uh, and and there's, there's all kinds of echoes in Psalm 2 of this story also, right? Here they are, so cocky, so self-confident, so self-absorbed, right? No, no desire here to glorify God, no desire to obey the word of God, to be fruitful multipliers and fillers of the earth with good things for the glory of God. No, it's about us. Let us, self-reliant, for ourselves, self-glorifying, right? They're self-reliant and they're self-glorifying, and we're going to make a great city. But then verse 5, but the Lord came down to see the city, right? The Lord in heaven laughs. He mocks and Moses chuckles here too. There is some humor tucked into this because the Lord who is in heaven can't see this tower from up there, right? They say, let us make a tower that reaches into the heavens and Moses tongue in cheek says, and so the Lord came down to see what they've done, 
right? They build this, this human thing that they just think is so awesome. But God, who's seated in his heavens, can't even see it. I hear they're, I hear they're building something amazing down there. Let us go down and see what it is. I can't see it from here. And so it's a joke. Of course, the Lord is not somewhere where he cannot see, but Moses is playing with them. Moses is playing with the story. He's, he's mocking them. He is laughing along with the Lord as the Lord laughing comes down to see. And then when he comes down, there's even, I think, from the Lord now a little tongue-in-cheek. Indeed, these people are one. They, they all have one language. They, you know, there's not, we can't stop them now. I mean, they're just so amazing. You know, there's nothing they put their hands to that they're not going you know, to fail in. So we've got to deal, deal with this. And the Lord mimicking them, come, let us, let us go do this. And he comes down and what does he do? He does the, he destroys the very thing they're after, right? He, he comes and takes them, confuses their language, breaks up their unity, and then does the thing they were dreading, scatters them, right? Here, here they are saying, let us do this so that we don't be scattered. And the Lord comes and says, you're scattered, confuses their language and sends them out. And so in some sense here, we have in the Tower of Babel a recapitulation of the very thing Adam does, right? Instead of relying upon the Lord, the, the, the sin here with Adam and Eve, the tree, as we've said, was not a bad tree. The knowledge of good and evil is not a bad thing. The desire to be like God is not a bad thing. These are all good things. And what you'll find in temptation, when Satan tempts you, and when you know, our hearts are prone to it, we don't just need it from the outside, we tempt ourselves in many ways. But what you'll find often is you're tempted to good things. Security is a good thing. Even glory and a name is a good thing. Right? But the way we get it matters. How do we get the good thing? Do we trust the Lord and his way to get the good thing? Or do we grasp after it, after it in a way that the Lord has not allowed or in a way that is not right or in a proportion that's not right? This is where the fine line is in temptation. You look at the things you're tempted to and you will find if you look for a moment, there's something good I want there. But I'm being tempted to get it in the wrong way. The Lord has promised you all. He has promised Adam the knowledge of good and evil. In fact, he will give it to him. The Lord had promised him glory. The Lord had promised him to be like him. Again, he made him in his image. He's shaping and crafting him. But he's going to have to learn obedience through what he suffers. He's going to have to be conformed to the image of his God through going through the trials and waiting on the Lord and having his strength renewed and all those other scriptures that come to our mind. But Adam didn't want to do that. Adam did not want to rely upon the Lord. He and Eve thought, let us for ourselves. And so they grasp after it. They seek to secure it themselves not trusting that God had their best interest in mind, but that, in fact, Satan had their best interest in mind, which is horrifying and disgusting even to think about. But it is, as we've said before, the same thing you and I do every time we're tempted and every time we decide, let us for ourselves. Every time we seek to grab this, thinking this will give me peace of mind, this will give me satisfaction. This will give me meaning in life. This will give me joy. This will give me justice. And we grasp for it for ourselves instead of obeying what the Lord says and how he calls us to get it, instead of waiting upon him and finding our strength renewed. Every time we do that, we are essentially saying, Satan, sin, 
you have my best interest in mind and not the Lord. That's, that's what makes sin so disgusting. We can become numb to sin. We can, we can stop seeing its, its disgusting nature. We can stop being repulsed by it because it seems like a little trip up here and a little trip up there. But when you start to think that, in fact, what sin is, is saying to God, no, I trust Satan on this one and not you, then it really feels quite repulsive. But this is exactly what sin is every time we cave and give into it. And so these citizens of Babel are doing the same thing. Let us for ourselves. We're the creatures of Almighty God. Why would he not secure us? Why would he not give us safety? He made us in his image. Won't he give us a name? There's a certain glory of man, Paul says this to the Corinthians. There's an appropriate glory that God has for you, and he wants to give it to you. Again, go back and read the book of Revelation. Listen to the glory that God is going to bestow upon his people. And you know, I always go back to the church of Laodicea. There's all kinds of blessings he gives in there. But the church of Laodicea is perhaps the most shocking, in my opinion. Because he says at the end of all those seven churches, he says, I'll give you a blessing. If, to him who overcomes, I'll do this. To him who overcomes, I'll do that. And these are for all the church, right? The seven churches, the fullness of the church. But to the church of Laodicea, he says, to him who overcomes, I will give to sit on my throne with me as my father gave me to sit with him. If I said that, you'd be right to pick up stones. If, I just, if that wasn't in the scriptures and I said, you're going to sit on the throne of God, you're going to sit on the throne of Christ with him and rule with him, you would be right to start looking for something to throw. But I didn't say it. Jesus said it to John for the church of Laodicea and through them to all of us. I mean, it's glory. God has glory that he's going to bestow upon you. But how do you get it? Well, you need to wait. You need to trust. You need to obey. And when we seek it now for ourselves, we do what they did in Babel. Let us for ourselves. But here's what we learn in this story. It does not end well. It doesn't end well for those who go after the let us for ourselves approach. And yet we are so prone to it. It didn't end well for Adam. It didn't end well for those in the days of Noah. And it doesn't end well for those in Babel. And so we ought to be getting the lesson. But this sets the context then. Because now the people are scattered. Their languages are confused. They're spread out now over the face of the earth, right? They won't go, so the Lord sends. He scatters them out. And this brings us to chapter 12, where of all these people now, as they go in all these different tongues, and here's the descendants of this and descendants of that, God chooses Abram. From among all the descendants of Adam, he chooses Abram. And then listen to the amazing, so he tells Abram, go. Go to the land that I will show you. Now, again, think about the confidence and the trust here. We know this, right? What a great act of faith that Abram, not knowing where the Lord is sending him and probably having all kinds of questions about where am I going and what am I doing, he goes. But he goes with this promise in Genesis 12, 1 through 3. And here, as I read it to you once again, have the Tower of Babel in the back of your mind, right? And listen to what the Lord promises to Abram in light of what those at Babel were seeking to do, let us for ourselves. Listen here. 
Get out of your country, from your family, and from your house, to the land that I will show you, and I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you, and I will make your name great, and you shall be a blessing, and I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse him who curses you, and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. Tower of Babel, let us for ourselves a great name, security, protection, scattered but to Abram go Abram and I will the refrain in the Tower of Babel the repetitive refrain let us for ourselves let us for ourselves the refrain in Genesis 12 I will I will I will I will either we trust in him or it's let us for ourselves but notice the I wills of Genesis 12 is I will do for you the very things they wanted they wanted a great name. I'm going to make you a great nation, and I will make your name great. It's not like the desire for a great name is a bad thing. The Lord, again, made us for glory. But it's a derivative glory. It's a glory given. It's not a glory we can grasp after. It's a glory he will give to you. And he promises here to do it. Trust me, Abram. You go, and I will make your name great. And they wanted security. Lest we be scattered over the face of the earth. But the Lord steps in and says, I got your back. I will bless those who bless you. I will curse those who curse you. And rather than like in Babel, where it's let us for ourselves, and, and you will be an intimidation to your neighbors, Abram, you do this, I will make your name great, and I will make you a blessing to your neighbors. I will make you a blessing to all nations. Through you, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. And it's a wonderful juxtaposition between these two approaches to our Christian life and to life in general. Who shall we be? Shall we be the let us for ourselves, or shall we be, as Abraham was, the truster of God that he will provide? And he goes into this land, and the Lord says, Abram, to you and your descendants, I'm going to give this land. And Abram right there builds an altar. Then he travels a little further, and he builds an altar, and he builds an altar, and he builds an altar. He goes around acting in faith and trust, trusting that this land is his. It's already a gift given. And so he plants these altars as acknowledgments that this is the land the Lord God is going to give. But he's going to have to wait. He's going to have to wait. In fact, you're going to, your, your descendants are going to be a slave for 400 years. You're not going to get this land. And you know, Abram's going to struggle later in the text. He's going to struggle with waiting. And we're going to find with Abram, he's going to do the same thing. Let us for ourselves, Hagar. Right? Hey, Sarah, let us for ourselves. And, Hagar, and Sarah says, okay, sleep with my made and abram slips into the let us for ourselves and the lord pushes him right to the limit i mean the clock is ticking and it's well past time for abram and sarah and abram just can't make sense of it and so he pulls a babble let us for ourselves and it doesn't end well it ends with ishmael but the Lord is working in Abram and he's bringing him through his life until finally, again, we get to the sacrifice of Isaac. And again, Abram trusts and recognizes, I've got to wait upon the Lord here. And though this makes no sense to me, I'll do it because I'm going to trust the Lord. He promises he will give. So it's a wonderful and beautiful juxtaposition here. 
the Lord makes these amazing covenantal promises to Abram. And what we have in Genesis 12 then is a statement, a, a redo, if you will, of the covenant of grace. Now again, we skipped over Noah, but this is the third iteration of the covenant of grace. That is God's covenant to bring light into the darkness. God's covenant to bring deliverance. Genesis 3.15, in the darkness of the sin there in Garden of Eden, everything went dark. Adam's relationship with Eve went dark. Adam's relationship with God went dark. They're hiding in the bushes. It's complete misery and darkness. And God brings light in Genesis 3.15. I'm going to do it. And then to Noah, he brings him into a new creation and gives the rainbow in the sky and says, I'm going to do it. And now in Genesis 12, he pulls Abram out and says, and I'm going to do it. And guess what, Abram? I'm going to do it through you. But how does this drive us forward to Jesus Christ? Because, again, we don't want to make these stories moral stories. Like It's like, okay, be like Abram, don't be like Babel. Though that's true. That is true. Right? There's a lesson there. Don't be the let us for ourselves. Be the one who says, I know you will. You will. You will. You will. And I trust you. And I will wait. But even in this text, in Genesis 12, we do have a big fat, as I said earlier, a big fat question mark that should be over this text. And that I believe is over the rest of the Old Testament. And which you already got the solution to because in our uh, reading, our word of exhortation today, we saw the resolution of the question mark. But here we get that big fat question mark put over us and it comes in verse 3. And I will bless those who bless you. I will curse him who curses you. And now listen to this. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Now that sounds beautiful. What a beautiful sounding thing. Abram, in you, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. It's wonderful. And don't forget that really the Jewish people, even to the time of Paul, I believe, had this idea that what that meant was that Israel was going to be so beautiful and glorious that they were going to be like this city on a hill that was just going to like just roll down blessings upon all the nations. The nations were all going to be blessed because there was some association that they had with this amazing place, this amazing people called Israel. It's going to be so much blessing that it's just going to overflow the cup and just roll down to the nations. But they're not reading their scriptures. What's the big fat question mark that hangs over this text? The question that hangs over this text is, but all the nations of the earth are under a curse. Like, have we forgotten in the grandeur and glory of Genesis 12, 1 through 3, and it's a beautiful text, have we forgotten Genesis 3? Have we forgotten that the world is under a curse? That the world is cloaked in darkness due to sin? That all the nations of the earth need to perish because of their sin? There is none righteous, no, not one. Jew and Gentile, as Paul says, in Gen are all wrapped up under sin. All are guilty. It sounds nice to say, through you, Abram, all the nations will be blessed, but how? It can't just be by this ascent into glory and everyone else will just enjoy the beams that flow off of my glory. Because sin has to be dealt with. Justice has to be done. Curse has to be given. And whether or not 
Abram felt the big question mark, whether or not Moses felt the question mark when he wrote it, we, knowing the scriptures, knowing that in fact God is just and cannot just brush our sin under the carpet and say, okay, we'll forget that now. And I just want, I want, I want to be nice to everybody and I want to kind of start over here. And, and so through Abram and his glory, everything's going to go well. We know that can't be the case. And so the question for us that should be left with us at the end of verse 3 is how? How are all the nations of the earth going to be blessed? And we know the answer because Paul resolves it for us in, in Romans chapter 3. The only way all the nations of the earth can be blessed through Abram is if Abram is cursed for all the nations. What Israel didn't realize in the very giving of this text is that it came with an unbelievable burden and calling. Yay, all the nations of the earth will be blessed by you, but rather than you just being so exalted that they enjoy the radiance of your glory, you're going to suffer for the sake of the nations so that through you, Abram, they can all be blessed. But this was a calling much too heavy for Israel. Much too heavy for Abram. How could Abram do it? He himself was a sinner. We see just a couple of stories. I mean, even in this, in the, in, in the next story, Abram's down there with Pharaoh lying, trying to save his own rear end, give his wife away as his sister. That was a great, great job on, by Abram. But trying to save his tail. I mean, very quickly, we see that Abram is not maybe the guy for the task. And really now, throughout the rest of the scriptures, we're looking for the guy. Who can it be? Is, is it going to be Abram? Eh. Well, how about Isaac? Eh. Jacob? No. Joseph? Eh. <laughs> Just one after the other, story after story. It's like, perhaps, no. Eh, no. Story after story after story after story, and when and how long, how long, how long. That's why I love that, love that hymn, Come Thou Long Expected Jesus. There should be, when we sing that hymn and we get to Advent, it should be such a joyous thing to sing because it's the, it's the Advent cry of Israel. Who's going to be the guy? And they don't even know what they need. They need a guy who can come as the seed of Abram and through whom all the nations of the earth can be blessed. But the only way all the nations of the earth can be blessed, if in fact all the sin of the nations is taken by this seed, their curse extinguished so that blessing can be given. Guy after guy, person after person after person after person. No, 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 but shadow, shadow, shadow of the one who is to come until finally in John 1, 29, as Jesus comes across the wilderness to be baptized by his cousin John, and John says, behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. The guy. So I love it when Pontius Pilate says, behold, the man. <laughs> he says more than he knows. Behold the man. Behold the one. Behold the guy. Behold the seed. In Genesis 3, in that seed, he says, notice, go back and read Genesis 3. He says, notice he doesn't say seeds. He says seed. And that seed of Abram was Christ. 
through you, through you and your descendants, through you and your family, through you and your seed, Abram. All the nations of the earth are going to be blessed. And you wouldn't get the resolution of that question mark. You know, Paul says in Romans chapter 3, for in times past, he passed over the sins of his people with great forbearance. He put up with them until the day of Jesus Christ when on that day, all the sins of the nations, all the sins that you thought were left unresolved were now taken and piled onto this seed of Abram, this descendant of Abram, this true Israel, this incarnation of Israel. All of it was piled onto him that it might be dealt with once and for all. As it says, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree and he bears the full weight of the sin of the world that now through him, all the nations of the earth can be blessed. And hence, after the resurrection, Jesus then gathers his disciples for the Great Commission. And what's he say to them? All authority in heaven and earth is given to me. Now go to all nations, making disciples of them, baptizing them, teaching everything that I've commanded you. Why, can, why does the Great Commission come there and not in the beginning of the gospel? Because the sin of the nations has been dealt with. The gospel has come to fruition. The hope of Israel and the hope of the world has come to fullness and fruition in the crucifixion and resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. And now, finally, the promise of Abram can go out to all the nations. And that's the point Paul's making in Galatians 3. This promise, brothers and sisters, he says, is for you. It was for you in the very beginning. It was for all nations, Jew and Gentile. It was never about the Jews alone. That's why when people say, well, the Jews are the special people of God, I mean, they are a special people of God. But don't forget, the calling of the Jews was for the sake of the nations. The reason there are Jews, the reason there are physical descendants of Abraham was for the sake of the nations. It was to bring in the whole world. All are wrapped up under sin that then in Christ all might be brought through by grace and by grace alone. And God can be proved to be the just one and the justifier of Jew and Gentile, of every race and every tongue and every tribe. So kiss the sun. Kiss the sun, Psalm 2. Kiss the sun. Bow before him, because this text in Genesis 12 is about him. It's about Abraham, and it's about a land, and there's a historical nature to this, and we should understand how this affects the rest of Genesis and the rest of the Old Testament story. But this story is about Jesus Christ. And we ought to bow and kiss the sun. And this teaches us then to wait. God will do it. Be careful you don't grasp for yourself, yet you will daily be tempted to do so. You're tempted right now. You're tempted to say, Bill, stop talking. We have things to do today. But don't do it. Don't do it. Wait. Trust the Lord. The best thing for your soul is to be here, to hear, to hear his word preached. You will walk out of these doors and you will be tempted immediately at some point to do something, to, to deny the obedience that the Lord calls you to, thinking that somehow this will give me satisfaction. But I call you and urge you, don't do it. Trust, fight back. 
Pick up the sword that we just learned today of today's text and fight back against it. Tell your soul to trust in the Lord for he is the one. Think about how long it took for this prophecy to be fulfilled. A lot of waiting. Generations and generations of waiting. But what we learn and what we have the privilege to know on this side of the cross and resurrection is that God not only will keep his word, he has kept his word. He has your best interest in mind. Trust him and he will provide. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for the juxtaposition of this text. Guard us from being let us for ourselves, people. Instead, instead, let us be the ones who trust in you to provide. For you have made amazing promises to us. You have promised to glorify us. You have promised to protect us. You have promised to provide for us. And Lord, you have given us the Lord Jesus Christ who has done it. Our glory is in him. Our security is in him. Our provisions are in him. You have done it. We have seen it. So Father, guard our hearts from listening to the evil one. Strengthen our hearts to trust in Christ through whom we have been and are being and will forever be blessed. Cause us to trust in him more today, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.